Well, good morning again. Welcome. We are uh, continuing in our study this morning at South Baton Rouge in Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in chapter 8 of that letter, and we are starting at verse 18, and we're going to work through to verse 25 of that chapter. If you've been with us in recent weeks, then you may remember talking, uh, me talking about the fact that this chapter is where we see uh, the Apostle Paul shift gears a little bit. He's been talking a lot about the things that God has done for us through Jesus and the cross. And uh, in this chapter, he's talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about what God has done in us and is doing in us by means of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and when I say Holy Spirit, I mean the Holy Spirit of God, the one who is sort of the card-carrying member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That Spirit is the one... <coughs> believe it or not, that indwells the people of God, that takes up residence within believers, and which that fact and the Spirit's presence affects a number of realities for us. Um, For starters, the Spirit is the one that moves people from or out of a state of spiritual deadness to being, uh, moves them away from being spiritually unresponsive to to God, in fact, not just unresponsive, but incapable of responding to God. The Spirit changes all that and renders God's people spiritually alive. And the, uh, there's a the 50 cent theological word for that is vivification. And, it, and simply that, it's God's reviving spiritually, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand things that would ordinarily fly right past us if it were not for the Spirit's work and presence in our lives. Additionally, the Spirit not only renders us spiritually alive and so enables us to hear and respond to the call of the gospel, it is the Spirit who goes on to bring uh, about a change, a progressive change in the people of God. And there's another sort of 50-cent theological word for that, and it's sanctification. And it's the process by which God brings about the kind of life and lifestyle and attitude and perspective that the law of God actually codifies and even requires, but the law by itself is powerless to produce those things within us. In short, the Spirit uh, conforms us more and more to the image of Christ, causing us in an ever-increasing, but, it's important, it's always increasing, but never in this life completed fashion, causing us to resemble Jesus in our attitude and actions. So because that's the sort of impact the Spirit has on us, it can be rightly said that at the end of the day, it is the Spirit's presence in a person's life. It is the Spirit's presence that is the definitive indicator that we belong to God. We actually do belong to God. The Holy Spirit is, is God's mark. It's God's signature across our heart and our life that says that unambiguously we are His adopted children. Not surprising then, and in keeping with the Holy Spirit's role as God's signature or mark on our life... Um, Another function of the Holy Spirit is simply to impress that truth upon us. Um, to assure us internally that we do indeed belong to God. In other words, it's not enough for that fact to just be objectively true. God wants us to know this. He wants us to feel this. He wants us to take comfort in it and and be delighted in that truth that we're His, we're His children. And it's the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit's job to drive that truth home. So that we do know that and feel that and experience that. That we are His children with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that accrue to that. 
And then as we saw last week, if it's true that we're children of God, then that means we're also heirs of God uh, and co-heirs with Christ. In other words, we're not just sons and daughters in name only. We actually have an inheritance that is ours. And ultimately, that inheritance, as we saw last week, is about God himself. He's the centerpiece of what our inheritance is. It is God. I mean, absolutely, heaven is going to be a wonderful place. And there's going to be lots of wonderful things in heaven, things about heaven that are going to be fantastic. But the most prized thing, the most wonderful thing about heaven, will be that God will be there dwelling in and amongst his people. We will see him face to face. We will interact with him, with Jesus in his flesh. And in looking at all that, we saw that there's a provision attached to that reality. There's a provision attached in the passage to the fact of our being heirs. And the provision is, we saw this last week, is that we suffer with him. We suffer with him in order that we will be glorified with him. And Paul's purpose in making that statement about our suffering and making that connection so strong as he does is not so that we'll sort of go out and look for ways to suffer then, but simply so that we will see the suffering that we inevitably will face in its proper context and see in its proper light. So we don't have to go out and look for ways to suffer. It is going to happen for various reasons that we saw, but we need a context, we need a framework for understanding what that's about, what that means. And Paul's giving us that. To put it another way, if you belong to Jesus, suffering is part of the deal. Indeed, even if you don't belong to Jesus, suffering is part of the deal because a certain amount of the suffering that must be endured is simply there because this place is broken. The world is broken. All of us in it are broken. We'll say more about that in a minute, but everyone, because of that, everybody suffers. But beyond that, there's the suffering that we incur as believers because of our own sin, as well as the suffering that we'll endure because we follow, we follow and identify with a crucified, suffering Savior. And if that's our Savior's path, and if we're His disciples, then we ought to expect suffering's part of the deal, it's part of His deal, so it's part of ours. One of the main things that all of this does for us, though, is because it's not suffering without a purpose. It's not suffering without a point. It's not without meaning. And one of the main things it does for us is, is that it prevents us. Suffering actually prevents us from falling in love with this world and the things of this world. It, kind of, it keeps us leaning forward. It keeps us looking beyond the things of this world to Jesus. And it actually sets us up. It sets us up to experience and receive the blessings of God as the amazing things they are. Well, in the passage before us this morning, Paul has more to say about all that, especially this whole matter of suffering, the nature of it. He's going to concentrate on two things, and that is the suffering that the creation, the actual earth, the world, endures because of sin and the suffering that we endure. And that's the general direction we're heading before we go any further. Let's pray uh, together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, would you please, please inhabit this moment and this occasion by your Spirit's working, such that you communicate clearly and convincingly and convictingly the truths that are to be found in the words before us this day. And like a, a sculptor who chips away at a stone, slowly bringing into view a particular form or figure, 
would you do that to each one here this morning? Use these truths like a chisel. Chip away all those things about us that do not resemble the person and character of your son. And leave us more and more like him in the aftermath. Would you do that? Would you do that in your good time? Would you do that in a way that's not so terrible and painful that it crushes us, but in a way that it certainly moves us forward? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen now to the passage starting at verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is the waiting, the frustration, the groaning, in a word, the suffering of creation. Paul uses this literary technique of personification. He talks about the creation as if it's a person and he uses the language of human emotion to try and describe the dysfunctionality and the brokenness of the world. He talks about the creation waiting with eager longing. He talks about the creation being subjected to futility and frustration. He talks about the whole thing groaning and straining with the way that things are. And the obvious question is, Uh, Where is all this coming from? Where is Paul getting all this? And the answer is he's getting it from the Bible, from Genesis 3. And what's going on there in Genesis 3, if you're not familiar, is simply this. Genesis 3 is where we find the, the fall of humankind into sin. The man and the woman both rebelled against God and so became corrupted and fallen and brought God's wrath upon themselves. And what happened to them in the midst of all of that uh, did not just affect them. It affected all those whom they represented. As we saw in Romans 5, is that's the entire human race. And, and can I just say, I cannot think, I cannot think of a single fact that has been better established historically than that one. Right? I mean, the proof of the universal brokenness of the human race is absolutely historically, factually, irrefutable. Now, the proof of the universal effect of Adam's sin is beyond question. Just follow your Twitter feed for five minutes or ten minutes. Follow any news feed, CNN news feed, for ten minutes, and you'll hear stuff coming in from all over the place. There's no question about it. And so humankind, Adam and Eve, sinned, and one of the consequences of their fall into sin was that they brought about a judgment, a curse upon the man and the woman, which affected them, but not just them. It affected all of their descendants. The whole creation itself. Listen to the words of Genesis three seventeen to 19. And to Adam, 
he said, uh, because this is God issuing um, a judgment. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. With those words, we have a description of the curse that God placed upon Adam. And in that description, we hear that the very, the very ground itself is affected. That is, the planet, the earth, this, the realm of nature was affected. And why did this happen? Because of him, the passage says. Because of Adam's sin. In other words, humanity is the guilty party, but the earth, the creation, suffers. The earth didn't do anything wrong, but the earth suffers. Why does God do that? Why does He do that? Well, at the outset, let me acknowledge I can only offer a conjecture, but it seems to me that at the very least, God cursed the creation so that from that point forward, the creation itself, which is often a thing of joy and beauty, absolutely, but it, from that moment forward, it will always serve. It's going to be a mixed bag, though. Because it's not just a thing of joy and beauty, is it? It's always going to be this daily, hourly, moment-by-moment reminder of the foolishness of any creature ever attempting to ignore or defy its creator. And so it is that the creation, which originally was, just a, was a pure paradise, it was nothing but joy and beauty. But it's not that anymore. Now the creation is an instrument of judgment by which humanity would experience daily, bodily, the curse of God, the consequence of sin, the effect of that decision to go that way. And so as, as Piper points out, you know, every, every horrible thing in the world, every broken thing, every disease, every famine, Every disaster, whether naturally or humanly driven, every hope that gets dashed, every frustration, great or annoyingly small, every single one of them is traced back to the fall of humankind into sin. Every single one of them is a function of this. That's how seriously God takes our sin. That's how seriously He takes our rejection of Him, our rebellion against Him. We, we can't just blow this off. It is a big deal. It's a big deal. And the evidence of that's all around you. The evidence is seen in a world that groans, that bears the marks of being cursed. A world that regularly frustrates our efforts to manage it, to simply obtain food from it. A world that screams through the megaphones of disease and famine and flood and tsunamis and rust and decay, and just sheer entropy. Just this past week, there was a terrible earthquake in Pakistan. Hundreds of people died. They're still digging, digging them out. What is that event? How should we see it? On top of everything else you can say about that event, which is a lot, you can say this. It's the earth screaming it is creation groaning 
under the weight of this curse that has been placed upon it. That's the first thing I want you to see. The frustration, the groaning, the suffering of creation itself because of human sin. The second thing I want you to see is not just the suffering that the creation endures, but also the suffering that we, as God's creatures, endure. Listen again to the passage. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So if, you know, in, if inanimate, personified creation is described as being frustrated and as straining and groaning and suffering, how much more would humankind itself be experiencing these things? So Paul says that even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. At first glance, that seems a little counterintuitive. When we, we have the Spirit, we have the Spirit. Which is a good thing. So why are we groaning? Well, the first fruits, which is something you hear about a number of places in Scripture, mostly the Old Testament. But the first fruits, what is that? Those are the early, sorry, the early gleanings of, of the harvest. right? It's the, the first things that start to ripen of whatever crop you've got out there. And you bring them in. And it's an indicator of an, of an impending good harvest. Uh, they're, they're kind of a preview a foretaste, a tidbit, if you will, of what was soon to come. Now, I remember as a boy going to my grandfather's house in New Orleans, in Metairie, and my grandfather was an excellent cook. and would pair all kinds of things on the grill. He could grow anything. His backyard was an absolute jungle. But he would grow things on the grill, and we would all stand around as kids. We'd stand around the grill, and we'd talk to him. And, uh, what, but what we were really waiting for was a time when he was going to open up that lid and pull out his pocket knife that and cut off a little corner of whatever he was cooking and hand that to you. And, and he would do that. And that little tidbit, that sample, it was delicious. And you couldn't think about anything else. For the, you know, after that, I couldn't hear what he was saying. I was just thinking about when is that thing coming out? When are we going to have that? And so he would do that all the time. When is the food going to be ready? And it's a part of the deal with God's giving us the Holy Spirit. It functions like the gleanings of a harvest or like the tidbit at my grandpa's cookout. It's this foretaste of a fullness that's coming. Right? It's the fruits, the gifts, the humility, the godly desires, the affection for the Lord. All of those things that the Spirit nurtures are meant to cause us to lean forward in anticipation for the fullness that is somewhere in front of us. And that's what the inward groaning that the passage speaks of is really all about. That's where it comes from. The fact that we have the Spirit of God indwelling us does not mean that we don't experience hardship and frustration. It doesn't mean that we do not struggle and suffer and groan and strain. Quite the opposite. It absolutely guarantees we're going to do those things. For at least two reasons. The Spirit's presence and work within us, especially in bringing conviction of sin to our hearts and minds, is a reminder to us of the brokenness within ourselves. And part of the Spirit's ministry is to cause us to grieve and to mourn over our sin, first and foremost, as well as the sin we see in others. You know, we, we are made to be, by the Spirit, painfully aware of how short we fall, of how desperately wicked our hearts are, of how much we need a Savior and everybody we know needs a savior and so we groan inwardly over that but alongside that there's another kind of groaning and it's the one that i think is primarily in view at this point in the chapter and letter and this other sort of groaning is a kind of 
uh, godly discontent. It's the experience of anxiety and frustration as we look forward to the arrival of something that is absolutely assured, but which is not yet within our grasp. It's coming, but it's not here. And so there's this groaning that comes as we're frustrated and we're dismayed by the brokenness around us, in us and others, absolutely. But there's also a groaning that's not because of what we see. It's because of what we don't see that we groan. Because there's something good that's not yet here. Something good that's out there and it's in front of us and it's ours, but it's not here. It's still on the way. So the creation and its creatures are subject to frustration and futility. But please notice two very important words in the passage. The words are, in hope. In hope. Paul says the creation was subjected to futility in hope. But hope for what? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of Of the children of God. In other words, the curse that God initiated and instituted, that judgment was not about vengeance and vitriol and God showing us who's boss. It was ultimately something that had in view a hopeful, a ultimate thing. Even if it was a long way down the road, but it had in view a hopeful, ultimate outcome. And Paul says that the judgment that fell the curse that was administered was done in hope. Hope for the creation itself, hope for those that are God's uh, people, His creatures. Right? God has good plans and intentions and purposes even as He instituted the curse that He did. Now don't get thrown, right? don't get thrown by this language of hope. The fact that God instituted this curse in hope does not mean that God was not certain of what He was doing. It doesn't mean that God was sitting there unsure of what the outcome would be. The language of hope is used not as a description of God's state of mind. It's used for our benefit. Because that is how we, right? That's how we are going to get through this. It's how we're going to experience this. How we're going to have to experience this to get through this. It's something we've got to wait for. Something that we're often going to be frustrated about. You know, we, we live out our entire lives under this curse, experiencing <coughs> this curse. We feel it. We feel the power of this, don't you? I feel the power of this every day. It's all around us, it's deep inside of us. But the effect of it for we who are His is not to to beat us down or crush us. It's to remind us of what happened, of the terrible consequences of sin. It's to cause us to look past this world and this life to one that's coming. To not settle. To not settle for the trivial things that this broken world can offer us. It's meant to make us lean and strain and stretch our necks, look toward the horizon, wait for that light to start breaking across the landscape. It's the language of hope, but in God's economy... In God's economy, hope is a dead certainty. It's a sure hope. So we have the historical reality to look at back of Jesus on the cross that has absolutely secured our hopes. And we have this first fruit, this sort of tidbit 
of the Spirit's presence and working. But what is it in the passage? What is the sign that is the last in, that the last installment is about to be given? That the fullness is about to be given to us. That God's going to finish what He's secured in Jesus and started by the Spirit. What is it we're waiting for? And the passage ties it to this. It ties it to the redemption of our bodies. Listen to the passage again. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Remember last week, we talked about the, uh, the glory that is being revealed to us, that's in front of us, it's going to be revealed when Jesus comes back. Well, there's more to it than that. Because not only is it revealed to us, but that glory is going to involve us. That's what these words are telling us. We're going to be caught up in it. We're going to share in it at some level. His full glory, when He comes, will be revealed to us. And in that same moment, we will be glorified through the transformation of or reception of our resurrection bodies. Right? And this is where the hope comes in. The hope, the sure hope of what is before us, what is on the way, is the thing that pulls us through the muck and the mire of this present reality. You know, this is the lifeline that helps us get through it all. This is where the language in the passage of birth pains is helpful. Right? Paul talks about the whole creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And has in view that situation, you know, where in childbirth, where you've got pain and difficulty, but there's this happy result at the end most of the time. But in a broken world, not always. But there's this pain, there's difficulty, there's this good result. It's a pain that's purposeful, it's redemptive, it's going somewhere. It's not random, it's not meaningless. And in that instance, the outcome, the good outcome is, is a child, we hope and pray. I was reading one commentator who, in talking about this, said, It makes all the difference in the world if the groans and the cries that you hear are coming from the birthing suite or the oncology unit. At first I thought, yeah, that's right. I get his point and distinction he's making. But then I thought, wait a minute. It's not completely right. I think I want to change that a little Because what do you say to the person on the oncology unit? What about her pain and her suffering? Is it real? And it, that pain and suffering is not bringing a new life into this world. It's taking one out of this world. And the truth is this. Even the groans and the cries from the oncology unit are the birth pangs that Paul speaks of too for those that are his. Yes, they are hard and they are hurtful and they are agonizingly real, but they are also that which precedes the securing of the fullness of all of God's promises to his people. What follows hard on the heels of even that severe providence is the glory and the beauty and the joy and the deliverance and the everlasting blessedness of life with God, of perfect fellowship with your Creator. 
And that tells us something about how this groaning that goes on in our lives ought to play out for us. Because see, both those things are true. There are reasons to groan. And there are reasons to have hope. They're both true. And it's good and it's right to acknowledge both of those realities. In other words, sometimes the most spirit-filled thing you can say, the most godly thing you can say, the most mature thing you can say as a believer is this is horrible. This is terrible. This is awful. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to acknowledge the brokenness and to mourn over the sadness and the frustration and the futility. It does not mean that you're letting down the team. It doesn't mean that you've lost the plot. Quite the opposite. It means you get it. It means you see rightly the sad effects of a sin-shattered world. And you feel the burden of that. Indeed, it would be deeply unspiritual and immature not to see things as they are. But, if you're His, that's not the only thing that's true. Because hope is real. Your hopes are secured. And they are just as true. And a maturing spirituality will acknowledge that reality too. Right alongside the other one. It's not either or. It's both and. And so if our perception of the world's brokenness, if all that produces within us is grumbling and complaining and cynicism and blackness, if all it leads to within us is self-pity and self-absorption, then at that point we are letting down the team. We are forgetting other things that are equally true about this life and this world. So ask yourself the question. When I notice the sadness and brokenness of the world, what is it producing? What is it producing within me? What is my groaning producing? What does it result in? A mere wringing of the hands? Throwing up the hands? Crying, woe is me? Are my groanings redemptive? Or are they just pathetic? Does it drive me to my knees? Does it turn me to my Savior? Or does it just create a wedge between me and Him? Our time is up. One writer, I think, sums it up well as he looks at this passage and reflects on it. And I'm, I want to leave you with his words. The Apostle Paul, with these words, is saying this. I don't care what your bodily maladies have been. There will be a day in the redemption of the sons of God when you are transformed. And he's saying, I don't care what those spiritual and moral deficiencies have been that have so marred and frustrated your assurance and your Christian experience. There's going to be a day when God has worked glory in you in such a way that you have been transformed. And he's saying to you, no matter what heartbreak that you have endured, you will come to a day when heartbreak shall end. I'm always conscious, this writer says, when I look upon the lives of other believers. I see believers taking care of family members that suffer from enormous handicaps and physical difficulties and mental difficulties. And I see them lovingly caring for those family members. And I think of that day when through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a complete transformation. 
There's not just glory that's going to be shown to them, it's the glory that's going to be shown in them. Can you imagine that day? And there's going to be a day when every believer who's been frustrated by sin, the believer knows what we ought to be in Christ, and yet we never live up to what we know we ought to be in Christ. And there's this frustration that we live with, and it's within us, and it's all around us. And suddenly, there's going to be a day, there is going to be a day, when it is no longer there. And that is going to be some kind of day. And it's going to be a day that starts and it never finishes. It just goes on. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we continue to wrestle with a groaning, frustrated creation with bodies and hearts that are experiencing the same decay and groaning. Help us to have the courage to call those things what they are and the freedom to do that and yet remind us and if when we can't remember bring other people from the body into our life to help us remember the other thing that is true and that is the hope we have that is absolutely sure it was secured by Jesus that is evidenced and highlighted by the Spirit and will be completed and finished. And we'll know it when these bodies are redeemed and replaced with something far better. We thank you, Father, that all of this that we go through means something. There is no randomness in your universe. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the hope we have in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I'll take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or various ministries through this church.